0: Well, as I just prayed and, and just mentioned, we are in this series called Big Questions that is tracking together with the Alpha series and the themes and the questions that are a part of that throughout this fall. Uh, you've probably been seeing some uh, billboards and, and notices and communication throughout the entire city as uh, so many people in the city and, and beyond are, are walking through some of the, th- the same questions together. And it's already been such an encouraging time to just see the conversations that are happening and the way that people are engaging. And I know that many of you are involved uh, with Alpha in different ways. We have a number of small groups. I think there's an Alpha group going almost every night of the week in different ways. And so it's really exciting uh, to see what God is doing and will do through this. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we we asked the question, is there more to life than this? And the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Last week, we looked at the question of who is Jesus. And we looked at uh, who He is in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also how we can know Him and the difference that that makes in our lives. And uh, today we want to look at the, the big question of, of why did Jesus die? And again, these are fundamental and foundational questions of the faith, which uh, for people who are new to the faith are so important to wrestle with and to understand. But also for those of us who have maybe grown up in the church and been in the faith a long time, To rethink and reprocess and to re-embrace these questions and who Jesus is is just so critically important as well. I want to just uh, start by just talking for a couple of minutes about logos uh, for a minute. Uh, If you know anything about marketing and if you live in North America you know about logos. Uh, You can't escape them. You can't get away from them. You see them all over the place. Uh, Any company or organization understands that that a logo is a powerful and easily recognizable thing. Um, They are of various sorts. They have been used for centuries. Apparently they go all the way back to the Roman Empire where actually brickmakers would put a stamp or an insignia on bricks and it would actually um, mark the maker's emblem and also the place of origin and intended destination of where those bricks were going to go. So it was like a logo that they put on their bricks that uh, went out with their product. Uh, I have a slide here of the five, I think, most recognizable logos in North America. My guess is is that all of you recognize those. If you're really young, you're wondering what that GE thing is, maybe. But older folks, they understand what GE is and what that all means. But, but these apparently, at least in North America, are five of, at least one website says, that these are the five most recognized logos in North America. And you recognize even in these that some of these have gone through different transitions. They undergo updating through the years. But a logo that uh, stands the test of time is generally broadly understood, easily recognized, and universally respected. People get it. When they see something, it captures a whole bunch of things. Sometimes not always what the company intends, but for each one of us, we see these things and immediately certain things come to mind, right? Right? Well, if a logo is visual, then there are also phrases or words that capture much more than those phrases or words mean as well. I want to introduce you to a word here, see if you can say this today, synecdoche. Anybody heard of this word synecdoche before? Well, I see a couple of those hands, okay, not holding them too high. Uh, It's a technical literary term, okay, and it means that a single part of something that is larger... So a single part of something that is larger and uh, complex, a system or a concept, but a single part of it sort of captures the whole, okay? And so if logos are visual, synecdoches are, are verbal. It's like a phrase or a saying. And when somebody says that phrase or saying, you understand way more depth and way more meaning than just the phrase or saying would actually convey. So right now we have the prince and princess visiting Canada, Right? And so when somebody says the phrase, the crown, it means all that is encompassed within the monarchy and all of that history and all of that tradition, right? So when somebody makes a reference to the crown, it means more than just this thing that somebody wears on their head, right? So you get that. It it captures far more than just uh, that one word might initially convey. If somebody says to you, hey, let's do coffee, what does that mean? Okay, let's going to go, how do you do coffee? I don't know. Does that mean that we're just going to go and enjoy a hot beverage together? Well, no, it typically means that they want to talk and they want to spend some time together. We want to kind of interact and discuss some things, right? So the whole thing about doing coffee is a synecdoche. It it explains far more than just that one simple thing um, also articulates. I I learned early in my marriage that when the question, um, what are your plans for today? That that was a synecdoche. <laughs> that it actually didn't matter what my plans for the day were, it actually meant that there was a whole agenda and a whole list of things that were encompassing that question that was there and ready for me. I also learned early in my marriage, and it's it's not the same today's because we all grow up and we change and it's different, that when I would ask my dear wife, you know, how are you doing? And she said, I'm fine. And in my ignorance, I thought that what that meant was that she was fine. (laughs) But what she really meant was that, you know, I haven't slept in two days. I have the flu. I have a pounding headache. I'm behind in work. The house is a mess. And I can't believe that you just asked to host your parents for the weekend when you're not even around. But I thought she was fine. So you understand that a synecdoche is a phrase or a word that just means something way more than what it maybe intends by the words that are contained there. So going back to maybe more biblical language, think of the Ten Commandments. Even the Ten Commandments in many ways are like a synecdoche. They, they contain, even in those short phrases, so much more in terms of the moral imperative and how you're to live. And they mean so much more than even just the few words that each one of them would initially, convey. And then there's the cross. And that's our focus for today. Then there's the cross that is both an image in terms of its visual, but it's also a phrase that means so much. And so when we see this image of the cross, and we we see crosses all over the city, we see a cross that is here on the platform, we see a cross that is Up there at the top of our sanctuary, you see in the picture that we have a cross on the outside of our building. Um, We know that, and some of you, if if I asked and I won't, but how many of you have a cross tattooed on your body? My guess would be that there would be quite a number of those. How many of you are wearing jewelry that has a cross as part of it? I would guess that there would be quite a few of those. I mean, the cross is both this image, this logo, you might say, although it's far more than that. But it's this symbol or image that conveys so much. It's also a synecdoche in the sense that it... When you say that word about the cross, it means so much more. Like it captures the very central component and aspects of the gospel in that two short words, that simple phrase, the cross. It's both symbol in terms of visual and synecdoche, in terms of a loaded term that means so much. So how is it that that a symbol of the worst human torture that man ever came up with becomes this all-encompassing statement and symbol for the hope and the promise of the gospel? How does that work? It captures so much depth and meaning of the truth and the centrality of the gospel. And I would argue that this is probably the most enduring symbol of all history. When people see it, it means so, so much, that it it captures so much more than just the simplicity of what it looks like and the simplicity of how we use the term, that it captures so much more than that. And so as we come to the question today of why did Jesus die, and we talk about the cross, we understand that there is so much more in that response. The question of why Jesus died is, is a very difficult question for many. Many people ask, why would a loving God allow his son to be tortured and killed? How come there wasn't another way? If Jesus was fully God, how did that even work? How can God sacrifice himself? And on and on. You could have all kinds of subsets of questions to the big question of why did Jesus die? I want to ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 2 today. And our primary text is found there in some of the verses in Galatians chapter 2. And again, this letter of Galatians is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Galatia. And so here is a group of believers that are trying to understand this newfound faith, asking themselves questions that we've been asking throughout this series, like, who is Jesus, and why did he die, what is the implications of the resurrection? They were asking those similar questions, and so to those big questions of life, Paul writes letters to the churches to respond to their questions, to help them understand more fully about what this faith in Jesus is means and how you live that out and so again galatians is a letter written to these churches so that they will understand more deeply about what it means to follow jesus and paul in this context and what we're going to look at in these verses in chapter two of galatians is is challenging these people who were jewish people by and large who came from this rich and deep and and long jewish history and and where you know abraham was their forefather and moses was this prophet who led the people out of slavery and how they had this law of Moses that they understood and knew, and now they were new believers in Jesus, and so Paul is teaching them, how do you be Jewish and a Christian? And so he's addressing a lot of the questions that, he, that, that people had, because people were adding Moses into their faith. They were thinking, well, you know, it's a good thing to follow Jesus and the freedom that we have in Christ, but if we add in also the law of Moses and sort of layer that over it as well, too, then we're sort of double-blessed, is maybe how they were thinking, Maybe we're covered both ways. And, and Paul says, no, the way you're approaching that, the way you're thinking about that is wrong. In fact, he calls it sin. And so he's teaching them and addressing some of these things about how do they walk in this newfound f- faith without being enslaved in Jewish regulations again. And so as Jews, they were asking is this question of, in turning to Christ, are we abandoning the Jewish heritage? Are we fulfilling it? Are we simply adding to it? They were asking these questions over and over. Do we go back to rule keeping? Or do we embrace this life of faith and the grace of Jesus in a whole new way? And they were wondering, what does it mean to live in the freedom of Christ? And Paul, before we get into the verses that we see here today and that we'll read from 15 on, Paul actually even confronted Peter. Peter, one of those apostles who was with Jesus and And he, too, is a Jew, just as Paul was. They both came from a a somewhat similar background. Both had this common heritage. And Paul actually needed to confront Peter about stepping back into the rule-keeping and even the uh, hospitality kind of rules that were there because Peter had been eating with the Gentiles up until this time. And now, here in this setting, he had stepped back from that because of the pressure of these people who were teaching a different gospel and saying, no, 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 you still have to keep the rules and the laws of Moses— and so Peter was kind of stepping back out of the fear of man and not eating at the tables with the Gentiles anymore. And Paul confronts him. And he challenges him. And he's teaching not just Peter, but he's teaching these people about what it means to walk now in this truth. Because Paul says it's not about your works. The Mosaic works. It's not about keeping all these rules. It's not about you know keeping all of these things and adding them into the gospel. You are made right with God, or made righteous by grace alone, and by putting your faith in Jesus. Now we have to understand that Paul is not against good works, and this is where it sometimes gets confusing because if you read the letters of Paul, you see him encouraging good works over and over again. But it's the kind of works that he's talking about. You might think of it as three kinds of works. First of all, there's the principle of works. If you think of the principle that, that works in themselves can actually make us right with God, they can put us in good standing with God and earn our salvation. So that's one aspect of work, works which Paul is speaking against. Then there's the Mosaic works, or keeping the Jewish tradition and the regulations of the Jews and all of these different laws and rules, uh, which was another kind of works of which, too, Paul is speaking against. Don't add those. But then there's good works, which come out of your faith and out of a response to faith and are actually just an expression of your faith, but not, you understand fully that they do not save you, but they give an articulation to your faith as you work out your faith before God. Those he affirms over and over again in his letters to the churches. And so we have to understand when he is challenging Peter and others about their works, he is challenging them about the previous two and saying that you need to live by faith. And even that phrase, by faith, is a synecdoche. Because when Paul is is using that word or that phrase, he means so much more than just mental assent. He's not just saying, you just need to believe in Jesus, and if you sort of give mental assent that, okay, Jesus is who he says he is, then then that's good. He's saying, no, 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 living by faith is, is is, it's a one-time and an ongoing belief in Jesus and walking in obedience to his ways that you do it every day. So when he talks about by faith, he's meaning that you by faith live in obedience to God, trusting in who Jesus is, so much so that your life changes and you walk in obedience in the steps of Jesus. And so even by faith means so much more than what we might initially think. Okay, let's get to the text. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to just start reading from verse 15 and, and, and following. So here he's saying, you and I, and he's talking here to Peter, but others obviously are listening in. He knows that. So not only is he responding to Peter, but he's teaching these Jewish people. He says, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners, quotation marks, like the Gentiles. Because again, you have to understand by their Jewish tradition, this was how you were separated. If you were born into the blessing of the family of God, the Jewish tradition, you were made clean by that. You followed the laws of Moses, and that's what they understood, So anybody outside of that were the Gentiles that they just simply referred to as the sinners or they had other names like the pagans and so on. And so how he's referring and teaching them here. He says, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law or by works. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. I think he's making his point. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. But rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of the law that I already tore down. And he's speaking here to Peter here pretty pointedly. Like if, if you have already torn down this old system of law and said it's not necessary anymore, and now you're rebuilding it into your faith, he says that is sin. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. So, Paul here in this text, he gets right to the core of this question. Why did Jesus die? What was the the need for that? And Paul goes straight at it in this text. I want to talk for just a minute about problems and solutions. Let me say it this way. The problem with solutions without seeing the problem is that you're not ready for the solution. You got that? Let me say that again. The problem with solutions without seeing the problem is that you're not ready for the solution. I think this is so often the case and something that I think we need to understand even today is that if we do not first of all see what the problem is then we're not actually looking for a solution, right? You know that in just your relationships whether it's with friends or in a workplace or whatever or just try bringing change to something. If you bring change in an organization, if people don't understand the problem that this change is actually solving, they're not ready for a solution or a change. So first of all, you have to sort of articulate, here's the problem. Here's what we have to address. And then secondly, a solution is then ready to come and ready to be received and ready to be weighed. That's why in marketing, it so often starts with this pointed or sometimes subtle pointing to why you're not happy. Marketing starts that way, right? It starts by somehow, either again subtly or not so subtly, portraying that your life is inadequate. You don't look as good as that person. Really? You're not having fun. Trust me. That's what they're telling you, okay? You actually don't have any friends. So, if you just drink this product, or use this technology, or buy this car, or whatever, then that problem will be solved. And I have the solution for you. This is the solution that the marketing teaches you, but they start typically by making you feel deep within you that there's a problem with me. And there must be a solution out there that I need to look for now that solves this problem. I think the Galatians didn't see the problem. They didn't really understand what the problem was of adding the law of Moses or adding these rule-keeping or these regulations or these things. They thought, well, this is good. This isn't a problem. This is a good thing. And Paul now is starting to point out the problem to them so that they can see the solution that the cross is adequate. And that faith and adding into the law was actually sin. And my conviction and my sense is, is that we too, and especially maybe those who've grown up in the church, those who've lived a long life of faith, those who come from generations of faith and people who have been part of a church might actually find it the hardest to see our sin problem. Because we can see those in our society and those in our culture and we look at, you know, those evil sinners and we say, you know what, well, they have a sin problem. They need to really come to faith in Christ so that they can repent of their sins and, you know, have this solution of jesus but i think for some of us who have grown up in the church we have lost sight of the sin problem in our own lives in my own heart and the reality the reality that we too have a problem that needs this solution i mentioned a couple of weeks ago if you were here when i shared about our hiking trip that a number of us went on and i i shared that Sunday about these two German girls who had joined our group and they had joined our conversations around the campfire that we had every night and we had this six days of our own alpha of just these amazing conversations about everything of life and faith and it was just an incredible experience that we had in August at the end of August and one of the questions that one of the German girls asked in our conversation was what is sin they came from no faith background. And then she asked a follow-up question. She said, you know, well, I know like all kinds of people who are just really good, godly... No, she didn't say godly. She said, they are really good, moral people. And are you saying that they're sinners? Yeah. So am I. And so it was a whole new concept for her to understand, okay, what does it mean to have sin? What does it mean that we actually have some kind of moral depravity within us? And is that true of all people? And so... At the very foundation of our faith, we have to understand that there is a darkness within us. There is an evil that is within our hearts that has a sin problem that needs to be dealt with at the cross. But if we don't see the sin problem, we're not looking for a solution. So the cross actually isn't that good news because we don't see the need for it. problem with a solution before we see the problem is that we're not ready for the solution. And so all through Scripture, when we come to this question about why did Jesus tie, it points us again and again and again to both the problem and the solution. And as I was even just reflecting on some verses that do this, and I could spend a long time going through biblical texts that do this, you see verse after verse and text after text that addresses both of these things. And sometimes the solution comes first, and the problem comes next. Sometimes the problem comes first and the solution comes next. Sometimes they're embedded right there within the text, both of them. Let me give you some examples. In Romans 3.23, we see probably one of the most pointed, uh, often memorized verses that we see in Scripture that point to the problem. It says, for everyone is sin. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. There's the sin problem. Point it out. And if you look just a couple of verses earlier in verse 20, it says it in a little bit different way. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. That's what Paul was talking about when he was writing to the Galatians, is he was pointing to this relationship between the law and grace and how actually it keeps us from understanding this grace and living in the freedom that God has for us. Romans 3, 21, 22 points us to The solution. It says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. That's an incredible solution, if you understand the problem. In John chapter three sixteen, another one of the most well known verses in all of Scripture gives the solution. It says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And this one, the problem comes just a few verses later, where it says, And the judgment is based on this fact, that God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. And it talks about the sin problem that there is actually darkness within us. Now, we actually have a tendency to gravitate towards the darkness and not want to bring the things into the light. In 1 Peter chapter 2, here's the solution that is given in verse 24. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Verse 25, the solution, or sorry, the problem. Once you were like sheep who wandered away. We are sheep who wander. There's the problem. And then immediately there's a solution again in different words. But now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. That we have a good shepherd who comes after us, who initiates, who pursues us with his love. And even in our text today, Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 16 and 18, where it talks about the problem. For it says, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Or in verse 18, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. And then the solution in Galatians 2.20, our key text for today. It says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I could go on and on and on. So many texts that show us the problem and the solution. You know, Tim, Tim Keller He's a well-known pastor and author who speaks, or whose church is in New York City, and he speaks with people who so often come with no background of faith or understanding. And he says in some of his books and writings that he has found that in previous generations, one of the highest values that was there, even in all of society, was to be a good person. That that was a high value for people, was to be a good person. But he's been noticing that the highest value today in kind of all secular society and all people is to be a free person. it's not so much about being a good person, now it's about being a free person, completely autonomous, independent, don't need anybody else, on my own, let me do my thing, don't put any restrictions or constraints on me. I want to be free completely from any obligations, responsibilities, accountability, anything. That's the high value. And he talks about framing sin in the context of idolatry and how that seems to make sense to people where he challenges people of Building your life's meaning on anything other than God is idolatry, and it's really at the root of all sin. Whether it's relationships and sex, whether it's just hedonism and all the pleasure that you can amass, whether it's your finances or your education or your careers or any of these things that they actually become the meaning of your life and those are the things that you pursue, they become a form of idolatry that he calls sin, that scripture calls sin. Whatever it is that separates us from the holy God, It may even bring us condemnation if we actually feel the problem or guilt. And so again, we see throughout Scripture this problem and solution pairing that is the good news of the gospel. Today, as part of our response, we're going to be taking communion a little bit later in the service of taking the bread and the cup and remembering the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood that was shed for us and for our sins. And again, these mean so much more, even to say the Lord's table or communion is a synecdoche. It means so much more than just what we're saying in those few words. But again, even as we take communion together, if we don't understand the problem of our sin, we really don't get the meaning of the cross and what these represent. Jesus the one without sin, died on our behalf on the cross. So that we might be free, that we might have relationship with God, that we might be free of the burden and guilt of sin in any way. Jesus took our place. There's a true story of a time way back in July 1941 of a prisoner who escaped from Auschwitz, that horrific camp where so many Jews were killed. And as a reprisal, the Gestapo selected 10 men arbitrarily to die in a starvation bunker when this prisoner escaped. And one of the men selected, his name was Francis Gajov, Gajovnicek. And when he was selected, he cried out and he said, oh my goodness, my, my poor wife and my children, they'll never see me again. And at that moment, there was a little man, a Polish man in glasses with wire frames, who stepped out of line. He took off his cap and he said, look, I'm a Catholic priest, so I don't have a wife or children. I would like to die instead of this man. And to everyone's amazement, his offer was accepted, and he was taken to the starvation bunker. And on August 14th, he was the last one to die. He apparently had an amazing attitude and created an incredible environment in that starvation bunker. He got them singing hymns and praying, but on August 14th, they needed the bunker for other people, and they gave him a lethal injection of carbolic acid, and that's how he died. 41 years later, in 1982, his death was put in proper perspective, Because there was a crowd of over 150,000 people and all kinds of Catholic leaders in St. Peter's Square in Rome. And in that crowd was Francis, the one who was set free. And the Pope said on that occasion about this man's death, the death of Maximilian Kolbe was his name. He says this Polish 47-year-old priest who stepped forward to give his life, that this was a victory like the one... like, like the one by our Lord Jesus Christ, because he gave himself, he gave up his life out of love. This man, Francis, died at the age of 93. And he spent the rest of his life going around telling everybody about the love of this man who died in this place. And there were generations of family that came from that. And even as you hear that story, do we have even a sense of a similar kind of emotion, a similar kind of feeling of the more amazing and wonderful way that Jesus died in our place, in your place, in my place, for our sin, that we too might be free. In Romans chapter 8, I know for many it's a favorite chapter in all of Scripture, and it is a chapter filled with the beautiful solution of Jesus Christ and all that it means for us. And in verse 1 and 2 it says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. What an incredible solution to the problem of our sin. There's no more condemnation, that we are freed from sin. We can never escape the love of God if you go on and read to the end of Romans chapter 8. And you know, guilt is feeling bad about the stuff that we do. Shame is feeling bad about who we are. And Jesus bore both our guilt and our shame. And we have been justified before God. In many translations, as you look at this text in Galatians, it uses that word justified. That we have been justified before God. Made right with him. In many ways it means it's just as if we didn't sin. That we have freedom. So in summary, why did Jesus die? Because it was the ultimate and final solution to the problem and consequences of sin. And it allows us to live free, without condemnation, without shame. It allows us to live in reconciliation with other relationships because of what Jesus did in reconciling us to the Heavenly Father. It allows us to enter in as Jesus invites us to join in His sacrifice and to live by faith rather than simply living by our own existence. It gives us a greater purpose to even tell this story, just like Francis, who went around and told the world about this person who died in his place. And we too have a story like that to tell, of this person who died in our place. And we can live, that we can be free. That's an incredible gift and reason for why Jesus died. Worship team, if you would come forward to lead us as we pray. Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you so much for your overwhelming love for us. I thank you for the cross. And God, God, even as we see the image of the cross, or we hear or say the words, the cross, we recognize that it means so much more than we could ever convey in those few short words. And I thank you for the depth and the richness and the transformational meaning of all that it captures at the true essence of the gospel. Thank you that we can live free, without guilt, without shame, in right relationship with you, and because of that, in freedom in our relationship with others too, that there is forgiveness and reconciliation. We thank you and we praise you. Thank you that we don't have to fear death because we know that there is an eternal destiny with you if we put our faith in you. And Lord, that in not fearing death, we can actually truly, truly live. That too, what an incredible solution. the problem of our fear of death. It's the Lord we praise you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.